This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We haven't actually opened the register, I don't know what you call it, that people can go and register as candidates for the next municipal election. So we don't officially have any candidates yet, but we have people who have said they're going to run. So for the sake of that, we'll call the person a candidate. But a candidate who says he is going to run next year for Ward 10, going against Maria Pearson, says that if he is elected, one of the first things he will do when he gets to city council is bring forward a motion introducing term limits on city councilors. He has said he would cap it, if he gets his way, that he would bring forward a motion capping city councilors' term limits at two terms that you cannot serve more than two terms on council. This is going to make sure we have fresh blood coming in to council, that no one's around for too, too long. It gets too stagnant. It is something that has been talked about a lot by a lot of people. It's something that has a lot of support. It is a very popular thing. But is it a realistic thing in any way, shape, or form? Well, Brad Clark served on council. He also served as an MPP. He's now the principal of Maple Leaf Strategies. He joins me now. Brad, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, sir. So if all the councillors won in the next election, which is probably not a terrible bet, but nonetheless, it it's, wouldn't be the first time, all of them would in, be in at least their second term of council next time, meaning that if our candidate here was to be able to bring forward his motion, he would be asking every single one of the city councillors in Hamilton to vote to essentially obliterate themselves out of office at the end of that term. What do you think the chances are of that happening? Slim, none, (laughs) nil, zero. (laughs) I'm running out of ways to describe it. I, I, yeah. So, so I wanted to say that up front because I can't honestly, as much as people may like the idea and as much as I think it's something worth talking about legitimately, I can't actually see any conceivable way that at the municipal level, this thing would ever get any traction. Do you agree? I agree. And usually the people who are proponents of it the most are new candidates who want some type of headline that they can run under or people who are frustrated with uh, incumbents in wards other than their own. Uh, very rarely do we find that residents in a ward where they really like what their ward counselor is doing, do they offer up uh, term limits as a solution to any problem. Yeah, but uh, but there is no, I can't imagine any scenario under which a council, and I, it's not just these counselors, any counselors would, in well, my it's mind... Not within, it's not within their sphere of authority. Uh, each level of government have it, has a different sphere of authority. The province has the, the, the actual authority to set mandates and set what the Municipal Elections Act allows. So uh, any candidate can say anything they want municipally. At the end of the day, uh, any such vote at a council level would be meaningless because it's only the province that can make that decision. Council could not pass a, I mean, not that they would, but council could not pass a bylaw that limits their terms to two? That's correct. So it's simply a show then. It's a show horse. 100%. That said, we'll get to the province in just a second then, because (laughs) would you, no, because I I, I do think there is, I don't know how widespread, but reasonably widespread support for this kind of thing. Do you agree with that? That the idea of term limits appeals to a lot of people. It comes up every election, uh, but frequently the polls that are done by different organizations do not prove out that that is a popular um, 
way of proceeding. It, how do you mean by that? If people say they like it, and then what? When polls are done, it shows that people don't really do want it? polling and they ask okay. what they would like to see changed in terms of how elections are performed and, and run, uh, that is one of the, the, the ones at the, the bottom of the list. Frequently you hear people about them wanting the right of recall also. Mm. But when the polling comes out, it, it doesn't come to the top of the list. So why then does it get brought up so much? Just people yelling the loudest get the most attention? Well, it's whatever flavor is on the candy that day. I and mean, you open up the paper and you see something, you go, oh, wow, this is sour. we got to do something. Let's, let's prohibit them from running more than two terms. Okay, what are from your perspective, and you've been on both sides, you've been in office, you've been out of office, and you've been in office at two different levels. What are the benefits of term limits? The arguable benefit is new blood. But equally, I could argue on the other side saying that if every two every two terms this particular council has to be fresh blood, then you're going to waste a great deal of taxpayers' money bringing in that fresh blood, training them, informing them, getting them up to speed, and all of the bad decisions that they may make because they really don't understand municipal law. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. A guy who says he's going to be running in the upcoming municipal election has brought forward the idea that if he's elected, he is going to bring forward... A motion to create term limits on city councillors. Well, Brad Clark, who joins me, has pointed out that this is really not in the purview of the city to do this. This is a provincial thing. But we just before the break, we were talking about the pros and cons of term limits. Brad, I mean, the pros seems, I think this is the thing that when people jump on this, they see, you mentioned new blood, new ideas, uh, some of these long, endless discussions on certain issues, the stadium, the LRT, these things, I, I guess the belief is that if you brought new people in, these things would get solved a lot more quickly because people don't have fiefdoms and dug in, whatever. That, that, that you bring in new people, those things will get resolved. Is that, from your perspective, the what the belief that, is? That, that seems to be the theory. And the if, challenge is, if the province were to implement it, and four years from now, after the next election, virtually everyone on Hamilton City Council, because it would be their second term, is prohibited from running again. Then you would have 14 to 16 brand new elected individuals with no experience on municipal council, possibly no understanding of municipal law, being elected. Because let's face it, the electors, the voters, don't vote for people based on a job application. It's not who has the most experience no. that gets elected. It's the popularity yes, absolutely. of that particular individual. So but, you could be electing people who have absolutely no experience, um, and, and they're now running a city. Is that not, though, essentially what happens? Let's use the example of in the States. It doesn't matter. I mean, you, it can be the current uh, person in the White House or any other president who's ever come in, they don't know what they're doing really necessarily when they come in. At least they bring in a whole lot of staff who haven't necessarily worked there before. What what would be different about it? Well, and we've seen that with Trump. (laughs) But we've seen it with a lot of other presidents too, and it's gone just fine. Well, candidly, historically, well, in the United States, their laws are completely different than ours to begin with. It's, It's a republic, so it's not a parliamentary process. 
but they have the executive branch of government and then they have the representative branch of government. So the president is the one that comes in uh, and runs that one office, but a lot of the people that are working in the White House, they move over from one term to another. There's an awful lot of experience and breadth of knowledge that the president can bring in. Frequently, you'll see cabinet ministers run for one administration and then miss one administration and then come back in again. So there is a breadth of experience available to them. That's not the same thing as a municipal council who has the experience and now is being prohibited from running because of a two-term limit, and you have people coming in with no experience trying to run a city. The globe would be incredibly challenging. It, well, no, for sure. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And the difference, you're absolutely right to have different levels or different branches of government so you have consistency with some change. It would be exceedingly difficult. You're correct. You would have to stagger somehow council, and then how do you decide who would actually be bounced off first and who would go second? So, yep. Now, the Globe and Mail back in 2014 had a piece that said, we don't. this is their words, we don't need term limits because voters take care of that stuff. But right. as much as that it sounds good, we haven't seen a whole lot of that in Hamilton, have we? I mean, we don't have a great deal of turnover. You would have to do something pretty egregious to really make yourself as an incumbent unpopular enough to get voted out. It doesn't happen all, all that often. That's not necessarily the case. When I ran for office the first time as a municipal councillor, I ran against Phil Bruckler, who was um, just a slightly different uh, style of, of individual. Uh, and I had slightly different merit to, to, to my uh, background than, than Phil's. And I beat the incumbent. So it can be done. Um, but the bigger challenge for me is how do we encourage people with merit, with experience, with business knowledge, with uh, government knowledge to run for office municipally? Especially if the person in your ward that you'd be running against has name recognition and hasn't done anything crazy or stupid or horrendous so that they're starting with a huge advantage. And, that, and that, that is the challenge. And then frequently in Hamilton, what we do see is we see, as you know, uh, upwards of 18 people running for one particular ward position or running for mayor. Well, at that point, you've really watered down the power of the Democratic vote to oust any incumbent. But that's democracy. That They, they have to be allowed 100%. to do that. Yeah, Absolutely. The uh, Now, I mentioned the Globe and Mail piece a couple of years after that, and the National Post was talking about term limits. It referred to it as an affront to democracy, basically saying, look, people, whoever wants to be in office at any particular time, if they can win election, they should be allowed to. Do you agree with that? Yes. And I would cite our own Canadian Charter. Our Canadian Charter enables us to have that, that opportunity um, to to select who is going to be running, and, and, and it enables anyone to run for office. Um, our charter is, is a very unique document that, that gives people the democratic right to seek office, but democratic right to associate, the democratic right to vote um, for who they want. So Canada is a very unique country, and, and I would be loath to ever suggest that um, limiting terms of office would be appropriate. You have also been, we only have 30 seconds, but you've also been sitting at Queen's Park. Could you ever imagine a government there of any political stripe entertaining this notion, having a discussion about whether we should bring forward a bill to try and bring in term limits? Could you ever see that happening? Yes, if a a government was in such dramatic trouble in the polls, 
that they need something to turn around and, and create uh, a, a real upwelling, I could see them trying to risk it. Brad Clark, former municipal councillor, former mayoral candidate, former MPP, and now the principal of Maple Leaf Strategies. Sir, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Have a great night. Uh, discuss among yourselves whether you think that term limits are good or bad. Brad, clearly not in favor. I tend to lean more towards the... I, I would entertain the notion. I don't find it the affront to democracy that he does. What do you think? Radley at 900chml.com. Send me an email. Let me know. Love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let me read you the beginning of a story from the Canadian press that came out today. A couple paragraphs here. Ontario drivers could soon find themselves motoring along the highway next to a car with no one in the driver's seat. The province's Liberal government is proposing to change the rules of its 10-year automated vehicle pilot project to allow for driverless testing. Currently, the testing of fully autonomous vehicles is only allowed with a driver behind the wheel. But the government is seeking public comment on a proposal to scrap that requirement. In other words... Ontario is right now looking at the possibility that you will be allowed to be on the road next to a car with no one driving that car. It's a, I mean, it's a move into Jetsonville. I mean, it is now a jump into the future to have fully automated cars on the road with no one controlling them. But several polls have shown that not everybody is yet convinced or comfortable with the idea of that. Some people believe they have some fears, they have some concerns. We are not quite at the point where we are ready to unleash an army, a phalanx of driverless cars onto our roads. Christoph Charnecki is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at University of Waterloo. His research focuses on safety assurance of automated vehicles and their appropriate behavior in traffic. He joins me now. Christoph, thanks for doing this today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I was just reading this. The government says we are getting very close to the point where we are ready to do this. Uh, You deal with this all the time. You're working in labs and dealing with these cars. Are we ready? I don't think so. We're ready. Um, I believe um, in in this case, uh, Ontario is following the footsteps of California. Uh, And uh, in California, there is now provisions for um, allowing driverless testing. Um, uh, but this is typically very limited, and uh, you know we, we really don't have the, the technology to unleash these uh, fleets, as you were describing. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so explain to me right now, because we have, I think most people have an image in their mind or a thought of what driverless cars, where we are technologically on this. Where, where, are, where is the technology right now for driverless cars? What can they actually do? Um, so I think, um, you know, what... what what these cars can do technically, they can uh, um, operate in a, uh, you know, geofenced area in good weather. Geofenced meaning that, you know, if you if you pick something like uh, maybe residential area uh, where there is uh, moderate traffic, uh, you know, we have very good lane marking. Uh, y- you know, there's there's not a lot of ac- unexpected events uh, such as maybe uh, you know uh, spontaneous uh, road closures and. And, uh, you know, you, you have good traffic uh, sign visibility and all these, you know, it's a good infrastructure to drive. Um, I think in good weather, you know, we, we can do that. Uh, that that's, uh, that's possible, but that's not what, uh, you know, the, 
the general and average uh, driving environment is out there today. No, I mean, in so in Utopia, we have the ability to make a car drive by itself and do it properly. That's right. And so, you know, as an example, um, and I guess this, is, uh, this might be also in response to Google announcement earlier, uh, this, this last year, uh, where they said, okay, now we will also uh, uh, you know, test these vehicles driverless in Arizona. Uh, uh, but that's perfect weather, and you have very wide streets, and it's, it's only certain, certain roads where this is allowed. And there's still actually a human, a, a, a kind of driver in the backseat, if you will. A safety net, a human safety net. One who is actually kind of can even drive this car with, with a, if you want, with a console, right? maybe not uh, directly at the steering wheel, uh, but can actually intervene, can stop the car. Uh, uh, so, so it's not, not completely, uh, you know, there's, not, uh, there's still human in the loop in a sense. Right? So. So, so theoretically, we could have driverless cars on our street right now, but the practical, for all intents and purposes, it would be, we're still a ways off. I, I, I would say so. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of still uh, challenges so for sure, uh, any kind of adverse weather is, is a challenge. Uh, driving uh, at night is something that's uh, technically still not a solved problem. Uh, and, you know, wh- while driving, 99% of, of driving, it's, it's sort of predictable, and we can do that. Uh, it's the sort of last, you know, 1%, 1% where all these weird things can happen yeah. <laughs> in an open-ended environment, right? Which, uh, which we're still not that yet there, right? And, and every day, everyone who drives knows that something weird is going to happen that is not expected. Exactly, yeah. We, uh, you probably saw the story. I'm sure a lot of people saw the story that was uh, three months ago, four months ago, maybe longer. Uh, in Las Vegas, they had a driverless shuttle bus that was driving around, and on its inaugural trip, it ended up in an accident. Now, it sounds like... The shuttle bus was not at fault in that case, but also the fa- the technology did not allow it to somehow prevent that accident. That's that's correct, and you know I, I think this is the key the key point that you're raising here that uh, these automated vehicles, if they were just left to themselves, they probably uh, could do a pretty good job, but they will have to interact with uh, human road users, uh, other vehicles, manually driven, and you know pedestrian cyclists, and so on. And um, you have to expect that uh, people will make mistakes and not always, uh, uh, you know, apply um, the traffic rules perfectly. Uh, and um, that creates a huge challenge for these vehicles, yeah. Yeah, there's one thing that we know about humans and about people, and that is we are unpredictable. Exactly. <laughs> and yet, and yet, for this to work now, I, I'm kind of surprised in a way that the computers and the things that drive the cars that we haven't gotten past this, not that I understand it to begin with, but that we're still at a point where we are dealing with this much unpredictability that we can't anticipate even within our computer programs. It, it, I kind of thought we'd be further than that, but clearly this is a very, very, very complicated thing. Yeah, so, and, and you know, the, the, the point is that uh, in order to actually deal with all this un- unpredictability, you have to have a lot of observation. You essentially have to constantly, you know, as a, as a, as a human driver, uh, you know, before you even the, touch the steering wheel, uh, you have, uh, you know, 16 years of experience moving around in the world and watching cars and, and avoiding obstacles and so on and so on, right? Uh, so you bring all that experience. And then once you drive, you, you daily are trained. And, and, uh, and, but you can also get information uh, through other channels, not just uh, through your driving. And so we have an opportunity with, with um, automated cars to actually collect this experience and share it am- among these robots. 
but uh, we have to, you know, get to a point where we can actually scale it, and we're not there yet. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from six to eight, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Christoph Zarnacki, uh, who studies automated cars, University of Waterloo. It's a fascinating thing, and we're just chatting before the break about unpredictability, because this is the big, big issue, I think, as I understand it, with automated vehicles. And Christoph, where this really, I mean, the worst case scenario that pops into my head is you have a kid running down his driveway or her driveway after a ball and comes out from behind a parked car and the automated, fully automated car doesn't recognize fast enough, doesn't see, doesn't anticipate that child and you end up with something horrible. That to me is where until that kind of thing can be guaranteed to be resolved, I don't want them on the road. Uh, okay, so um, I, I would say that when it comes to automated vehicles, the scenario that you were just describing, um, actually automated vehicles can probably handle much better than a human could. Really? Yes. Um, so when it comes to sort of collision avoidance, reacting fast, um, you know, the, the thing is that you know, most accidents happen uh, and humans are extremely good drivers. I mean, like in the U.S., uh, there's um, roughly 100 million kilometers between deadly accidents. So a, a person drives roughly, 100, on average, 100 million kilometers be, uh, uh, you know, uh, between there is a deadly accident. So wow. humans okay. are extremely good, except when they are not paying attention, when they are distracted, um, when they're tired, and so on. Um, and, you know, computers, of course, don't get tired. Um, computers can detect these type of situations in a split of a second. Um, so I think, uh, you know, that is, 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 is something where, where this technology shines. The, the challenge is, uh, you know, this un- unpredictability more in interaction. Um, uh, you know, let's say um, a vehicle is coming and, and, and there is a person who wants to cross the street, right? Maybe, maybe it's not at a, even a pedestrian crossing. Um, you know, today you have a person looking in the, potentially the eyes of the driver. There's some interaction going on. Uh, that's much more difficult when you have an autonomous vehicle. So the, would the best scenario then be that we have all the cars driving automatically and therefore all their computers can c- communicate back and forth and we'd have no accidents? Absolutely. That, that, uh, that would uh, eliminate a lot of accidents. Also, you can imagine if... if if vehicles can communicate with each other, uh, essentially a vehicle could see around the corner uh, where you normally cannot see maybe with its camera, but you can talk mm. to a buddy around the corner who has a camera and can see. Um, so, um, and, and, and also you could have, you know, different type, types of uh, uh, interaction at intersections where you don't need lights at all. Um, you can imagine uh, vehicles not even having to stop on red. Uh, they could just slow down slowly, I mean, just a little bit slow down and, and let the other vehicle pass because they just talked about, uh, you know, they agreed on it up front uh, via radio communication. And then all of our streets become a giant Walt Disney World ride. <laughs> we just get in our car and away you go without having to do anything. I mean, it's a, it's a really, really interesting thought. Do people want that though? Because here's the other thing about this. It's, it's really cool to be able to think about the end of your day at work or you're driving to the cottage or somewhere else, you can just tip the seat back and pull out a book and your car is going to take you there. But a lot of people still actually really like to drive, don't they? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's certainly mixed. However, you know, if, if you just uh, think about commuters, it's, uh, there's a huge number of people who spend a lot of time commuting. Yes, yep. They could use that time productively otherwise. Uh, they would be happy to. So um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's definitely uh, demand for, for this type of dual uh, use 
uh, vehicles where you where you uh, you know you can you can kick back and read your book or do some work or you know if you want you can also drive yourself. Is that what the future eventually is in your mind? Do we do we go to a point where we become completely driverless, or do you always see the possibility of the dual use? I I, I believe that that in future. It will be more, you know. So, so one one possibility is that that uh, driving a vehicle will be like riding a horse today, right? So, so even ri- riding a horse, it's allowed by the Ontario Traffic uh, Highway Tra- Traffic Act to ride a vehicle if if necessary on a public road. Uh, you don't see that much, right? And it's rather discouraged. Uh, so, you know, um, it it will be a rather a rare rare case in the long term, uh, just because of the possibility of of human mistakes. Uh, you can also imagine that these vehicles might create sort of an envelope around, uh, you know, the driver in terms of what the, you know, so the, so the vehicle takes uh, uh, maybe inputs in terms of steering wheel and so on from from the driver, uh, but make sure that no accidents happen. So it's almost like, uh, uh, you know, driving a um, uh, like a kid's vehicle, and and the vehicle only listens to you when when it makes sense what uh, what you're inputting, right? Let me ask you one more, and this is one of the ones that I've heard a lot of people say, and I'll, and uh, I've thought the same thing, to be honest. If I'm sitting at home working on my computer or at the office on my computer, there are times when my computer decides to freeze up or it decides to do something stupid or I get a virus or who knows what can happen, but my computer does not always work exactly the way I want it to. What's to say that the computer running my car couldn't freeze or burp or have a hiccup or something else that would suddenly, as I'm driving 120 along the 401 for five seconds, go into a freeze and I'm helpless now behind the wheel of the car because I'm now reading my book, not even paying attention. Surely that, that's a concern that, that uh, makers of this uh, uh, technology um, have and, and uh, addressing. Uh, but I would compare this with you know the fact that uh, if you're today flying a uh, a large uh, commercial airplane, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, you know similar amount of software in computers there, uh, and potentially if you're an autopilot, essentially a computer doing this, uh, and we have all sorts of redundancy and, and all sorts of methods to make sure that that you know this kind of freeze up that you get uh, on your phone doesn't happen. Uh, so we have methods to address that. It's it's challenging. It's costly. So that's why creating you know these systems that actually can drive cars or fly airplanes are much more expensive uh, and, and much more difficult to create than, uh, than perhaps, uh, you know, the software that freezes up on you. I, maybe the same people can fix my computer and make it run better, then I won't be so worried. Uh, Christoph Zarnecki from University of Waterloo, really, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Bye. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Our Prime Minister is coming through Hamilton tomorrow. He's stopping at McMaster for a Q&A at Burridge Gymnasium. Apparently, they're expecting a big crowd. Not surprising. He's the Prime Minister. And here's the thing with tomorrow's little meet and greet, with tomorrow's little visit. My understanding is that journalists are not going to be permitted to ask questions. This is a town hall for the people, by the people. So journalist questions are not going to be allowed. That's fine. I mean, I disagree with it. I think they should be allowed to ask questions, even if it's afterwards, but nonetheless, whatever. They decide they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. What are you going to do? But what I am truly hoping tomorrow 
for the to 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 send a message that the future of our country is in fact as bright as I really hope it is. I am truly hoping that when Prime Minister Trudeau arrives on campus, he is not met by screaming hordes of fanboys and fangirls only interested in showing up to take a selfie. This is a this is a town hall that is being held on a university campus, a university campus, a place of higher learning, a place where you like to believe, and I do believe, that the leaders of tomorrow are getting an education. This is a place that is not in a pub somewhere. This is a place that is not at some mall somewhere. This is on a university campus where presumably, hopefully, many of our brightest young people are in attendance. I hold out great hope that tomorrow, not only will it not just be a screamathon as if Justin Bieber had walked into the auditorium, they can cheer. I'm not saying don't cheer. But last time Justin Trudeau, I think it was the last time Justin Trudeau showed up at McMaster, he was, it was a photo op and he was helping to do move-in day. He was there to shake some hands. And it was, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. I am hoping and expecting that the leaders of tomorrow, that the people who are some of our smartest, most engaged young people will take this opportunity to ask real, substantive, important, meaningful questions. Meaningful questions, not suck-up questions, not back-rubbing questions, not comments about how wonderful he is or what socks he's wearing. Listen, if a student at McMaster tomorrow asks what socks he's wearing, that student should be expelled and barred from campus forever. That is not a question worthy of a university student. I don't expect they will ask that. I would hope that no student would actually ask that. I'll tell you what question I would ask if I was allowed. Journalists aren't allowed to. If I was allowed to ask him a question, we just had a professor from University of Waterloo, a scientist, science professor. Remember a couple of years ago when Justin Trudeau and Pierre, or not Pierre, Freudian slip, when Prime Minister Trudeau went to University of Waterloo and he stood in front of that smart board or chalkboard with all that physics written on the back and he gave an explanation of quantum physics. Remember that? When he broke it. Now, of course, that was not rehearsed. That wasn't planned, right. But anyway, so when Justin Trudeau stood there and allegedly on the spot, just with the knowledge that he holds, gave an answer to explain quantum physics, you know what I would do tomorrow if I had a question? Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, could you please explain quantum physics again? Because I've kind of forgotten how you explained it that last time. Love to see what the answer to that would be when it wasn't rehearsed this time. Um, um... Um, yeah, that probably would not go too well, but that's just me. But the more serious side of things, I am really hoping and really expecting and really holding out great hope that the university students who are there tomorrow will treat this seriously and give hard-edged questions that he should get, as should any 
prime minister. Not picking on Justin Trudeau. Any prime minister. If Stephen Harper showed up there, I would have expected hard questions. If a prime minister shows up on your campus and says, ask me questions, give me your best shot, I am hoping and expecting they will come through and give him their best shot and ask real questions. It's going to be very disappointing tomorrow if we get here tomorrow evening and we look at the questions that were asked and it becomes fanboy hour. Mac, you're up. Do us proud. Do it right. Don't, don't, don't turn this into Justin Bieber hour. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. It was during our show yesterday, so we didn't have a lot of time to really percolate over the topic. Some news broke during the show. About everybody's favorite quarterback, Johnny Manziel, who apparently is going to, well, maybe going to be a tie cat. I don't know. But everyone thought up until yesterday at about this time that he was going to be a Hamilton tie cat for sure. Well, all of a sudden, apparently his agent goes on Facebook and says, yeah, you know, there's things are going well. We love the tie cats. We love June Jones. We love all that stuff. But oh yeah, um, we expect Johnny Manziel to be paid at the same level as the leagues, as the quarterbacks, the Ticats have had in the last few years, which is Zach Caleros, which was the highest paid player in the league. That caused a few people to gulp and say, well, maybe this thing isn't going quite so well. Uh, his name, my next guest's name, came up in the conversation yesterday when I was chatting with Don Robertson uh, because he is a guy who knows as much or more about football than basically anybody else in this city. So who better to bring on to chat about this interesting slash circus-like dilemma than Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML. Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. Anytime. My pleasure. All right. You are the general manager of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. You are Kent Austin, and you go on Facebook yesterday, and you see them now saying, and apparently Kent Austin had not, I guess, heard this demand, and you see that now Johnny Menzel wants to be paid Zach Caleros money, a guy you just shuttled out of here to clear salary cap space. You say what? I say, get me the Montreal Alouettes phone number. <laughs> <laughs> trade, trade. Yeah. We're willing to move them. Uh, you don't. Do you call the guy, or do you call his agent right away and say, "Could you please?" Uh, you're talking about our third string quarterback, right? Not our first string quarterback. <laughs> no, they're they're talking about Zach Aleros, who's getting you know well over five hundred thousand dollars, and I mean he's not going to get that with Saskatchewan. They'll, they'll restructure that before. His $200,000 bonus is coming up uh, pretty soon. Um, <clears throat> listen, I, I know where his agent, Eric Burkhardt, is coming from. I know that um, he thinks that uh, Johnny Manziel is going to be uh, you know, one of the elite players in the CFL, and I know that Johnny Manziel thinks that as well. And we also know that Tiger Cats head coach June Jones believes that as well. I mean, he told uh, a reporter uh, a few weeks ago that Johnny Manziel has the potential <clears throat> to be not the best quarterback in the league this year or in the last couple of years. No, no, in the history of the Canadian Football League. So we are, uh, you know, superseding Doug Flutie, Warren Moon, Russ Jackson, Ron Lancaster, Ricky Ray, Anthony Calvillo, Damon Allen, blah, 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 blah. All those guys, Johnny Manziel is going to be better than him. And that's coming out of the mouth of the head coach of the team who is trying to sign Johnny Manziel. So, whether the agent for Manziel thinks he has leverage, I, I'm not sure where that leverage is, is going to be because 
you know, we references, you know, if a deal is not done by the end of this month, uh, which gives them about, you know, just, just under three weeks, uh, you know, we're going to look at our several other professional options at our disposal. I'm not sure what those options are, and I'm sure we'll discuss them. But, uh, you know, th- this is really the, the, the art of the deal. If you read the book by Donald Trump, The Art of the Deal, this is the back and forth and now the tie cats and Manziel's agent, Eric Burkhardt, are now uh, undertaking. Okay, so let me play the other side on this one. You just mentioned, and you're correct, you're absolutely correct, June Jones, head coach of the Ticats, said Johnny Manziel was probably going to be or would be the best player in CFL history. If I am his agent, why in the world would I not then say, if I'm the best player in the league, I should be paid as the best player in the league? Why, why should he not take that position? Well, I think he has to take the position of, you know, here's a guy who is uh, a Heisman Trophy winner. He's a first-round draft pick in the NFL. He has he has the potential to be uh, an absolute superstar in, in this league. Now, there's no guarantee he's going to be that, but the potential is certainly there if everything kind of comes together. <clears throat> um, the fact of the matter is that he also has to understand that the CFL – has a salary cap, and in that salary cap, each team is allotted five point whatever million it is going to be this coming season. Um, so for Manziel to uh, command half a million dollars, uh, and let's not forget, Hamilton just signed a guy in Jeremiah Masoli to be the number one quarterback in 2018. Why would you pay the potential backup more than your projected starters? So, well, two reasons. As, Two reasons. First of all, because he's never going to be your backup. Johnny Menzel, I, I, I'm sorry, I, everyone keeps telling me that he's going to come here and he's going to bide his time on the sideline. D- to me, there is no chance that happens. Johnny Menzel is not going to spend 2018, if he signs, standing on the sideline. He is your starter. Well, <clears throat> here's, here's the counterpoint to that. If the Ticats want to win football games, at the end of the day, that's what puts people in the stands. You can have... Uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky throwing passes to uh, Luke Tasker, and, and people aren't going to come out if they're not winning football games. I mean, that kind of buzz really subsides in a hurry. So if Manziel is your starter with zero CFL experience, uh, you know, good luck to the Ticats. I, I really can't see that happening uh, unless they say, uh, okay, you know, you've had a great training camp, but we're going to name you the starter. Uh, more often than not, 99 times out of 100, the incumbent uh, no matter what free agent comes to town, the incumbent is going to start training camp and is going to start game one as the starting quarterback. If if it's anything but Masoli on day one, I would be utterly shocked. But the one part about this, Rick, that uh, look, I I would I'm playing devil's advocate here. Jeremiah sure. Masoli to me is the better quarterback right now in the CFL. If you want to win games, I agree with you. If you want to win games, that's your guy. But I'm not convinced. That this whole Johnny Manziel thing from from point one, I am not convinced this is a football story. This is a business story. Johnny Manziel will generate interest to sell tickets. Johnny Manziel will sell season tickets. Johnny Manziel will sell merchandise. Johnny Manziel will get ratings up on TSN. Johnny Manziel will get t- uh, American ESPN and other American broadcast networks and media up here giving attention to the Ticats and the CFL. If the Ticats go 0-18 and all that happens... Do the Ticats really lose? Well, yeah, they lose because they don't win the ultimate prize. But if they're if they're profitable off of the guy that they are paying half a million dollars, then I would say, yeah, it worked out for them. But think about this. Masoli starts the season, and just the specter of what if 
he goes down with an injury or they're getting pummeled and, and June Jones says, hey, let's look to the potential greatest player in the CFL who's going to come up and, and save the day, just the allure of him in the stadium and that potential of he might get into the game and then he might do something amazing, uh, I think he's going to be there whether he's starting or not. It, it might even be there more so if he's not starting because there might be that pent-up kind of uh, thought to say, hey, get him in if we're not doing well. I mean, the backup quarterback, Ron Lancaster used to say this all the time, the backup quarterback is the most popular player he did. in the stadium because everyone wants to see that guy if the starting quarterback is not doing so well. And I remember very clearly who he was referring to when the late Ron Lancaster, maybe the last time, was saying that line and giving that line. I can't remember if you were doing play-by-play then. If not, you were certainly in the stadium when the great Timmy Chang was standing on the sideline and Danny McManus was struggling and everybody was yelling for Timmy Chang, who honestly was the greatest practice player I've ever seen. I think he had a 100% completion rate in practice. I don't think he ever threw a bad ball in practice. And you would go and watch this guy and say, he is going to be amazing. And then he finally, because everybody was screaming for Timmy Chang, got into a game, and I think you would have played better than Timmy Chang did when you got in, and that's no insult to you. Well, this... I, I recall his first start, and it was a Nathan Peterman. He threw five interceptions <laughs> against the Argos, and they got absolutely, well, Petermaned. <laughs> he, yeah, he... Um... He was the opposite of Tony Akins. I don't know if you, everyone remembers. Tony Akins was a receiver who came up here and had four touchdown receptions in his first game. Never matched that again. He was the opposite of. He was the anti Tony Aiken. Yeah. But no, I, I I agree with you 100. percent If you've got Johnny Manziel standing on the sideline, and Jeremiah Masoli goes in and is only mediocre, or gets a knock and has to sit out a few downs or whatever, it is. There is, I'm sorry, the pressure to put him in, whether he can play or not, whether he's ready or not. I don't, if ESPN starts going to the Ticats and saying, um, you know, we've been here for four weeks, when are you going to play the guy? Yeah. Even though you would never hear anyone admit that that was happening. Johnny Manziel is going to be the guy who is playing. The Ticats are not, I don't believe that any team, forget the Ticats, I don't believe any CFL team in this position, unless they've got the number one quarterback in the league. I don't believe they're going to let the guy sit there and not use that to try and draw more attention and get more eyeballs. Well, you know, case in point, when when the Ticats offered Manziel a contract over the weekend, you know, we saw the, the, the story not only across Canada get coverage, but the ESPNs, you know, the NBCs, the Fox Sports, they all jumped on the, hey, Johnny Manziel has signed a contract or has been offered a contract by a team in Canada. Yeah, he's, he's still trying to play football. Let's, you know, uh, revive this whole Johnny Manziel story. And, you know, good or bad, the guy has, you know, some talent on the field. He has some skeletons in the closet. And, yes, he's going to sell tickets whether he's playing or not. They're going to sell jerseys. Uh, they'll they'll have a uh, an impact uh, in the uh, in the market in terms of profitability. Now, though, whether that's going to match half a million dollars, I, I have no idea. I'm not sure how many jerseys they're going to be able to sell. But the attention on this franchise is going to be that of uh, you know intense focus, not only from you know Canadian football fans, but those south of the border too. Does it matter if Johnny Manziel succeeds? From, again, I'm talking from a business perspective here. If Johnny Manziel, see, I'm I believe that if Johnny Manziel comes up here and completely flames out. You get almost or more eyeballs than if he is a wild success story. If he comes up here and does what he says and is the and what June Jones says and he's great, 
there will be people watching, but there will be a lot of Americans tuning into ESPN for the CFL games if Johnny Manziel is a mess. Yeah, I think you know there's there's two definitions in my mind in terms of you know flaming out. Number one, uh, the the poor That's play true. on the, the poor play on the field, right? That's I mean, true. Yeah, we've got to talk about both sides of the coin with this guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's if, he, true. if he's an absolute hot mess on the field and this team stinks and he's throwing three interceptions a game and getting sacked and just has no clue on how to play three down ball, yeah, that's going to be a story. If he gets into trouble and does something dumb. Uh, whether it's substance abuse or domestic violence, which which he has a history of, or, or doesn't meet whatever the conditions the CFL has set forth, uh, it, it's yeah, it's going to make news. But I think that's going to be more of a black mark on the organization for allowing him to be a part of the organization and the league and the league and the, and the league because they came up with these conditions. Uh, I think it's going to be egg on a lot of people's faces, and that's what they don't want. That that's the last thing they want. See, I, again, I'm looking from the position of his agent, and I'm looking thinking, if Johnny Manziel does sign here with the number of people across the country and across the states who will tune in, with the number of Manziel jerseys they will sell, with tickets they will sell, and then people are in the stadium, so beer and hot dogs and everything else, all those things, I I would bet money that the Ticats make more than $500,000 Net or if not even the Ticats, the league with the and TSN with the money with the the ad rates and stuff like that. I if I'm his agent, I'm saying yeah, absolutely. You're going to make more than that off my client. Why should he get paid far far less than what he deserves when knowing he's going to be a cash cow? Yeah, and think about this too. I mean, in the Gretzky McNall candy days, uh, you know their first order of business is getting Rocket Ishmael, this hot shot. Uh, Heisman Trophy winner, uh, who uh, was, uh, I think the contract was a million dollars a season. And he. I think really, it was five. I thought it was five. I thought was it was it 25 million? million. Yeah, for five years. Yeah, I thought I think, it was. You know what? I think you're right. Yeah. And he really, you know, turned the league on its head. He was all that and then some. And he didn't come with, you know, the baggage that Johnny Manziel does. Uh, yeah, he had a bit of an ego, but I mean, the, the guy was multi talented and, and, uh, and delivered when. Uh, when the opportunities arose and really never got into any trouble up here. So that's the closest comparison I can come to, and that's they're two totally different circumstances, but still uh, a high-profile American uh, athlete coming up to play a CFL ball and expecting the world. In one case, Ismail got it. Let's see if Manziel can get it. Well, yeah. The, the other names that came to mind for me, although they were at the end of their careers, were Mark Gastineau and Dexter Manley that came to yeah. Canada. Yeah. Both guys with huge baggage, and both were basically worn-out versions of themselves. They weren't anything like, but they came up here, and they, they were disasters. Uh-huh. No, I mean, on the field. They were disasters. I don't know what they did off the field. I can't remember if either one got in trouble. Would um, Would there be anything for the CFL to consider use from this example, assuming again, and I really believe that while Johnny Manziel, I think will be a mess in the locker. I really, I think if a guy comes in with having set these parameters right off the bat, it's not going to go well in the locker room when he shows up, if he gets this kind of money, nonetheless, is this the time when, if you're the CFL, you consider, you know, maybe we should have something in our salary cap that gives you an exemption, like the old MLS used to have, where you could have a superstar player that doesn't count against your salary cap, mm-hmm. and whatever you got to take to get him in here, or is that just a stupid thing now because the CFL is going along tickety-boo, why do we want to tinker with things? Yeah, I would think that would maybe even set off the players even more so, because you know a lot of the guys on, on, on every team around the league are making the league minimum. We're talking you know $53,000, so now if you open the floodgates and say, 
hey, you can have one, you know, quote unquote superstar. The David oh, Beckham. Wow. Yeah, that, yeah, which is what it was for when they first had it in MLS, exactly. I think. Exactly. And it's worked great for the MLS. And that league has really exploded, not only team wise, but, uh, but uh, monetarily. It's just been a, a tremendous success. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the economics of a nine team league versus a league in the States that has, you know, multiple billionaires running, you know, franchises, I, I'm not sure it would work. In, uh, in you know on this side of the border, and I just think that would add a little more fuel to the fire in terms of those guys who are nowhere near the mega million dollar superstars that might play on on a particular team. Just before I let you go, I, I just said, how do you think if he were to get this, if if his agent is able to pressure the Tie Cats into giving Zach Caleros money or close to it? Let's say he gets four hundred thousand, not five hundred. Let's say that's the saw off. And he walks into the Ty Cats dressing room for training camp. How does that play? Well, number one, he'd be the highest paid player on the team. And number two, if he doesn't produce on day one in training camp and start to win some guys over, uh, there's already players on this team in Masoli's corner. And it, they're going to be hard-pressed to be won over. So uh, I don't think it's going to play well at all. Do you believe... Because we hear these stories about football players, especially offensive line. If if Manziel were to come here, or anyone else, and it was a quarterback and was not popular for whatever reason, and if it was because of a huge contract or ego or whatever else, do you believe at times that offensive linemen allow quarterbacks to get sacked, to send a message, to allow that to happen, just to, hey, settle down? I think it might happen in preseason. I don't know if it happens in the game. Because in the preseason, you might have guys from, uh, you know, certain circumstances who may know that they're not going to make the team, and if they really don't like a guy, they might do that. I've never, I've never even heard anecdotally that that, that would happen. I've, I've seen with my own eyes, quarterbacks get sacked, and offensive linemen not go and extend a hand to pick up that quarterback. And, and when you see that, you know that that quarterback does not have the support of his O line. Um, yeah, I've so never I'm, heard an offensive lineman say he did it. Of course, they would never yeah. say they did it, but you hear afterwards the stories that say, yeah, they really, they sure didn't put much effort into right. closing that gap. They kind of just let that guy blow right through. And then the story is, yeah, we're letting it happen. Yeah. And you know what? If that, you know, if you're the quarterback in that situation, you, you, you can probably tell when it happens. And especially yep. after looking at the tape to say, hey, you know, Joe Schmo, my left tackle, uh, kind of sold me out here. <laughs> if you're that quarterback, you better carve out about a hundred thousand of that to buy your offensive line something nice to keep you alive. If you got four hundred grand, a hundred of that is going to your O line to make sure they keep you safe. Exactly, and that's you know that's one of the things he can do to say, hey, yeah, I'm the highest paid player on this team, but guys, I'm taking the whole team out for dinner. It's on me. Go nuts. Yeah, at McDonald's. <laughs> Happy meals for everyone. Hey, he's worth. I think he's worth like four million bucks. So I think he could afford it. Rick Zamperin, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. Take care. Uh, that will be, I think, my plan is, just in case you're wondering, that that will be the last time we talk about Johnny Manziel until something further actually happens. I'm just telling you. But I wanted to get Rick on because, first of all, we, as I say the news happened yesterday right during the show and didn't get a lot of chance to, to really give it any kind of thought, but... I don't want to push the Johnny Manziel fatigue too far down the road. So... Until something actually happens, I think this may become a Johnny Manziel free zone. I'm not saying never again when something happens, but for now. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.